Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. Sexism has become a front-page news. Revelations of systemic abuse and harassment in all walks of life, from politics to media, sport and fashion, have put the subject in the spotlight. In politics, it is clear the problems do not start or end in Westminster, and the Labour Party is not immune from them. We'll be asking how deep the issue goes and what practically can be done about it. I'm Connor Pope, and I'll be discussing all of that with Rural South MP and Progress Chair Alison McGovern, Bristol West MP Thangham Debonair, and Tower Hamlets Councillor and Progress Strategy Board member Rachel Saunders. Seven years after leaving the front line of politics, and two years since stepping down from Parliament, Gordon Brown will publish his memoirs next week. So we're going to start off the conversation this week just by talking about what our favourite political memoirs are. Rachel, I thought we could start with you. I know you you definitely have a favourite. I do, and I think it might be a popular choice. I thought Harriet's memoirs were amazing, partly because of just the honesty and straightforwardness of it. She is incredibly harsh on herself, actually, but also because of just the absolute clarity of purpose. You know, she went into Parliament to represent women. She's been incredibly effective in her support of women and in the way in which she's she's changed policy to you know to. Change change women's lives across the country it's absolutely extraordinary and the thing which really strikes me about her memoir is that there are very few people who can be absolutely loyal to every leader as she absolutely was even when you know she got sacked she remained unbelievably loyal but absolutely committed to a cause as well and there are lots of people with causes I think who aren't necessarily loyal and lots of loyalists who don't necessarily have that kind of strength of of integrity so to be absolutely loyal and absolutely committed to the cause that she believes in is yeah incredibly impressive. It's a very timely uh, choice that as well actually because I think it was the 35th anniversary of her by-election win just last week. So. Isn't that amazing? I've, I've, I've done seven and I feel very old. <laughs> Can't imagine what 35 must yeah. feel like. And to be seven months pregnant in her by-election as yeah. well, those yeah. pictures, she looks so young and so happy. It's amazing. Thangham, can we... Well, I mean, I, I would have chosen Harriet's memoirs as well, except for Rachel's <laughs> already beat me to it. Um, but I had a backup choice. But I just I think the thing about Harriet's memoirs is there's so many striking visual images that have been so inspiring. And something about having them written down sort of adds to that. The picture of Harriet pregnant and campaigning 
in the by-election. It's just it's stuck with me for years and years and years, and it, I think it's inspired loads of us. But I was then going to go with Alistair Campbell's diaries, um, just because they're brilliantly written, they're in the moment, and anyone who's interested in what we're like in government, it's a brilliant view. Um, whether or not you agree with what he says or or uh, some of the ways that he's gone about it, um, I, I actually really admire the contribution that Alice has made. But his his diaries just offer a fascinating insight into the last thirteen years that we were in government. Yeah. This, is, this is a terrible admission, mm. but I've not actually read them. <gasps> I've read no. them so many times. Okay, <laughs> wow, I might, so have to, many I, might, times. I might have to now. And there's yeah. a, actually with Gordon's coming out next week, Alistair's latest set of diaries that came out just a few weeks ago covered the kind of transition period from Tony Blair to Gordon Brown. So it's kind of an interesting time where you'll get more than one. Yeah. They're, they're uh, completely different from reading Harriet's account of the same time <laughs> yeah. period. Yeah. Totally. They're, I don't think there's much in common, but they, they're a really, really good viewpoint. Indeed. Absolutely. I mean, I was... I obviously love Harriet's memoirs, it goes without saying, but Barbara Castle's book, yeah, Fighting All the Way, is yeah. a absolutely cracking memoir. And she was a very different type of political leader. She was probably more more factional than Harriet, but she did incredible things. And also, I mean, people forget that was the generation that um, saw the Second World War, perhaps weren't, you know, active participants in it, but but, but felt it intimately. And when she was a young councillor, you know, she like made national newspapers. And, and so she has this incredible story. I think the other one that I would really recommend is Harold Wilson's accounts of his time in government. I mean, again, completely different from kind of <laughs> modern gossipy memoirs. It's literally like a textbook of their time in government. And, you know, the accounts of the difficulties they had with trying to manage their way through like the post-colonial times and independence and everything. It's like a very, very rich picture of British history. I was I was definitely going to mention Barbara Castle as well, mainly because I grew up in Blackburn, of course. So on the kind of shelves at home, you would have... Uh, not just her autobiography, but all of her diaries as well. And my uh, my grandma was a kind of avid reader and uh, a Benite. So I've always actually really enjoyed Tony Benn's diaries because they, they are actually a kind of, uh, no matter where your politics are in the, in the party, I think they are a fascinating insight to a kind of a really important political operative. But the one that I was actually going to say is my own was one that I read about a year ago. And it's a guy called Paddy Devlin, who was involved in the setting up of the SDLP in Northern Ireland. And there's just one scene in it that I remember so clearly. It's him as a young man when he's involved in the IRA in the 1930s. And the Second World War happens. And there's an IRA meeting, and he can't get to it. And basically, they give out buckets of paint to young men at the meeting and say, you need to go out and paint up the Fool's Road, you know, the Catholic area in Belfast. Paint England's crisis is Ireland's opportunity. But unfortunately, a lot of these young men being kind of working Catholics in Belfast in the 1930s didn't have the best education. And so when he walked up the Fool's Road the next day, there was all of this graffiti that said, England's crisis is Ireland's opera tune. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. But but it's just also a a really good and fascinating uh, memoir because it's actually, you know, Northern Irish politics is not something that gets a lot of interest up until, you know, Brexit. And I think it's yeah. quite important to understand a lot of the things behind that. But anyway, I think that is all we have time for on that conversation. But do stick with us just after this. If you like the Progressive Britain podcast, please do subscribe, rate their podcast and leave a review. We're really keen to hear your views, your feedback from the discussion today, from the podcast overall. Be part of our conversation. So go to on the iTunes account and leave that review. 
Contact us on Twitter or Instagram at Progress Online or leave a message on Facebook forward slash Progress Labour. You could pop us an email at office at progressonline.org.uk. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There is a lot of focus at the moment on sexual harassment and abuse in British politics, with politicians from all parties and all levels expected to be implicated. But the issue and what drives it is nothing new. So what can be done to help solve it? How pervasive is the problem and how does it manifest itself? Thangam, if I could come to you first, because you have a lot of experience in this issue professionally, could you explain to us a bit about the programme that you worked on prior to being in Parliament? So for the 10 years in the run-up to when I was elected in 2015, I was working for various domestic violence organisations, but mainly to the respect, the national one, um, that supervises, networks, trains, accredits, supports, work with perpetrators of intimate partner violence. And I also work with one of those programmes, an organisation called DVIP, one of the oldest in the UK. So I would be working with a group of up to 16 violent and abusive men on a weekly basis for sort of three hours, with a break in the middle, thankfully, um, but always co-working. And that's that's kind of one of the things I wanted to talk about is we had a principle both in the good practice standards that I helped to develop for respect and in the work that I did, which was that this work had to be done in a co-gendered way. It had to involve women's voices and women's experience. But it absolutely had to be men challenging men. And it was important as well that it wasn't just a men's group, because whenever that was tried, sort of two men facilitating a group of men, the atmosphere just tended to get more blokey quite quickly. But also that it wasn't left to two women, because that was just women cleaning up men's crap, if I'm honest. And and, and that's what I wanted to say, is that if you are a non-abusive man, and most men are, thankfully... It's not enough just to be non-abusive. You have to be able to step up. You've got to be able to name what's going on, to be able to call out your own friends because you're actually in a 
much better position to do that than, than a lot of women. And it shouldn't be left to women to have to not just deal with what's happening to us, but also challenge it, name it, take all the rubbish that is currently going on where we're criticised if we've spoken up for not having spoken up earlier or for overestimating it or for saying it's not that bad, it can't be that bad, it must be, it couldn't have been that bad otherwise we'd have spoken out earlier. And it's, these are really old classic tropes about gendered violence, which I'm just really tired of and I just want to challenge men in Parliament but in public life generally to step up. What do you think, Thangham, when it comes to the men who were taking part of the, in those groups and clearly like they were there because they wanted to be there and so in a sense they had taken the first step or whatever, what do you think was the single insight that would make a difference and change somebody's sort of like philosophy about these sorts of things or... Well, it's interesting because actually you'd think they they were there because they wanted to be there. Actually, a lot of them were there because they'd been sent, they'd been made by either the courts or social services. But that in itself was an incentive. And usually, I'm afraid to say, to get them in through the door, to get them to take the first step to changing their behaviour, it was quite often stick rather than carrot. So there was something is going to happen to you if you don't go along to this group and at least make an attempt to change. And sometimes the men didn't change and we made women and children safer through other things like social services or police involvement. But sometimes they did. And when they did, it tended to be when they realised that there was also something in it for them and that intimacy and having a good relationship with a woman, whether it be friendship or a partnership, was more likely to be more satisfying if they didn't treat women badly and and that was often a light bulb moment and it was quite difficult to sit on one's own sarcasm and not go do you think <laughs> uh, when men would go do you know I've just had this blinding insight now I'm not expecting parliament to turn into an encounter group or a support group for, for men who've been um, sexually harassing women but there is something about the fact that it was often men challenging each other and saying mate that doesn't sound like that was really nice for your partner and being able to call it out and say, that sounds like I've been in that situation, I've done that sort of thing to my partner, I'm pretty sure that she was scared. And we used to get them to do things like reenactments, role play, um, but also just just being able to talk through with them and drill things down and say, so what was it you were trying to achieve at that moment? What was it that was going through your head? Which bit of what you were saying did you think was consistent with your the way you like to see yourself? So there's that as well. You know, Most men, if you ask them face-to-face in this place, would say they wanted to be seen as someone who treated women well. So it was a bit of working on that cognitive dissonance, if you will, the sort of gap between what you say you want to be like and what you're actually being like. Rachel, can I just bring you in on that? Because actually, I think part of what Thangam was talking about there was people challenging people who are essentially their friends. And it's you know, stuff that you kind of don't want to see in people that you like. But you recently stood down as deputy leader of Tower Hamlets Council and you wrote a piece recently about your kind of experiences of sexism and this kind of stuff within the Labour Party. I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, one of my kind of key memories, which is awakened a bit by what Thang was just saying, was when I was standing outside a Labour group away day and I had a man standing over me and shouting at me and kind of hectoring me and pointing his finger at me because I was chief whip at the time and I wouldn't take him off licensing committee. (laughs) And that obviously... (laughs) deserves being you know somebody being being very aggressive towards you and he did a whole kind of I know where you live I know where your family lived da, da, da. and in that moment I just kind of stood up to him and said back off not doing it and I kind of walked around the corner and burst into tears and somebody another woman found me and was kind of you know are you all right you okay and then a bloke came over and said like what's happening and I said oh no it's fine but the person I was with kind of explained to him a bit of what happened and he just said oh no he wouldn't do that what? And I'm like, well, 
I'm so not, just, I didn't just you, burst into tears spontaneously. Do you know what I mean, I'm not telling lies. So that there's something about kind of realising that somebody can be your political ally, he can be a good campaigner, he can be your friend, he can have made a great contribution in many ways, and he can intimidate, bully, harass, yes. undermine women. Like, you know, and that people are complex, people do good things and bad things, and a number of things can be true at the, at the same time. And if somebody's saying to you, you know, something awful's happened to me, then the first thing you do is either walk away if you can't deal with it and just not be in the situation or do what you can do to support not to just kind of well they wouldn't have done that but I think there's, there's something that goes on there which is that we ourselves will sometimes minimize what's happened to us or minimize the impact or brush it off as a way of survival and coping but when men do that what they're doing is they're increasing the public space for other misogynistic or abusive mm. men to operate in and, and I think that's what's what, what I'm I want us to highlight is the guy in that story who just said oh he wouldn't have done that he may well not be in himself an abusive man I don't know mm. but actually he's making it more possible for that other guy he's making it okay he's making it okay yeah and and that's what's got to change I really do think that the, the significant change happens when men call each other out on these things. And so would that be the single thing we should ask of men in politics generally? Because like this is an issue that is not about it's not about one party, it's not about one section of one party, it's about society and life as a whole. Would that be your ask request of men that they have to even that, that not being abusive is not enough. That you... Yeah, it is. Because not being not abusive is, is absolutely not enough. Because men, when they're non-abusive, they still benefit from the consequences of other men's abusiveness. They still have more control of public space, whether they realise it or not, whether they recognise it or not. And I'm not expecting them to recognise this instinctively. But it's not enough. And you, you shouldn't expect a badge for it, and most good men don't. But there's got to be something in addition to that. And, it, and also one of the things I'm quite tired of is people saying... Men saying oh well of course I think that's bad because I've got a daughter well you don't have to have a daughter to know that misogyny is a bad thing because you've got female friends colleagues a mother you know you don't you don't have to be straight you you don't don't have to be straight you absolutely don't because yes abuse happens to men and women but overwhelmingly intimate abuse and harassment happens by men to either men or women and so it is men calling out other men and you definitely don't it's yeah all men I want all men involved in this can I ask as well is is there an element of not just men who are not abusive but perhaps who don't realize in the sense that there may be a kind of conscious versus unconscious way that this power works whereas if you get called out for you know sexual harassment or worse going but I didn't intend it to be taken that way so therefore I'm not actually guilty of it is that a thing and I think sometimes the risk of it is where men are actually benefiting from this kind of culture on in a in a kind of a day-to-day basis so I'm not doing anything wrong by laughing at my mate when he makes a joke about how she looks or, or whatever or you know kind of we, we used to have a situation in, in the labor group where people would throw bits of paper across the room at each other when somebody they didn't agree with was speaking and you can kind of think well you know just having a laugh just you know being with the lads you know she, she was annoying me we didn't want to have to listen we were bored but actually if you start by just not hearing women's voices and undermining and trivializing them and making it hard for them to to say anything then you get to kind of intimidation and and bullying and and then you know it moves on and it moves on and it becomes harassment it becomes other things and actually people need to to recognize where that kind of culture is beginning to develop and nip it in the bud there before it gets much worse i mean the thing is it benefits all of us it benefits us politically 
basically. If we have a parliament and councils and political space in which men and women all feel equally able to contribute, because we're not all going to think the same, we've all got different contributions to make, but having an intimidating atmosphere for women, it doesn't make us snowflakes just to kind of back off from wanting to participate in something that is just really aggressive and unpleasant, or where we feel fearful that we might be harassed, or where we've got harassed. We weren't fearful beforehand, we're probably not fearful now, but just the fact that you've been harassed will make you back away from a particular situation. Mm. And our politics is the poorer for it. And I think especially in the Labour Party, so I do want to make something party political, we are the party of equality, we have it explicitly written into our constitution, it's what we're here for, and, and therefore, yes, I do actually expect more from us as a party, I really do. And I think one aspect of that as well that it'd be good for men to reflect on is that the Labour Party is built on on working class culture. It's a working class party and that that can be very gendered and in how people see it and in how people imagine it. So if if you're frankly sometimes a quite posh man kind of romanticising, you know, our industrial past, then it can be quite hard to imagine what women's place in that is. And I think I mean, I've certainly come across plenty of men who think, well, I've had a tough life. You know, what's this middle class woman whinging? about in terms of the issues that she's facing and it shouldn't need to be a competition we can care enormously about poverty and deprivation and about elevating people who need support at the same time as not wanting to have harassment and discrimination against women you know, all of those things are important i also think you know to our male colleagues why wouldn't you want to be the better man why, why wouldn't you want to be the bloke that is actually respected by women um, why wouldn't you want to be the man that's ready to call out another man's um, behaviour and actually say, no, this, this isn't working for me? Uh, why, why, would you, why would you not want to be that man? I think Rachel kind of hits the nail on the head. My experience would be that there's a comfort sometimes for people in the Labour Party generally of our history and our kind of cultural past. And stepping away from that can be can be quite uncomfortable sometimes you know I experience the same thing in football culture often and it's really really interesting actually now that women's football is doing uh, better and is, is much more on the rise the kind of subtle challenging of those stereotypes within that particular culture and I think that we have to do that within the Labour Party you know we have to say that we are a working class party but that we leave behind any of the past that meant that you know women couldn't go into a working men's club on their own or that kind of thing and you're right Thangham why would you not want to be one of the men who changed that why would you not is what Thangham describes as, as being the party of equality something of a blockade to the mentality that it happens in our party do you think I felt like certainly with other um, issues people have gone well you know we are anti-racist, so people in the party wouldn't be anti-Semitic. And similarly, does it does it happen in the same way? Do people go, well, we are feminist, therefore we are we cannot be sexist. But I think that's that's where the tool I was talking about earlier, the tool I used to use with violent and abusive mm. men, is so helpful. We as a party, we do not want to see ourselves as being anti-egalitarian. And we can use that, the gap between what we like to be seen as, who we want to be seen as, and what what this sort of behaviour says about us. I think that's a really useful space for us to work on. So being able to say to someone, you don't have to stand up and say, that's out of order, I want you banned from any other meeting ever, but rather to say... That, what you just said there, what, what do you think that says? What sorts of messages does that give about who we are as a party? And how does that... I'm having difficulty marrying that up with who we want to be seen as as a party. And I'd really like us to think about how we could do that a bit better. You know, there's, there's lots of ways of doing this. 
And I think it's also because we're the party of equality, that we're the party full of campaigning feminists who are going to get this dealt with. You know, we should be proud of the fact that so many Labour women have talked about their experiences. It's because we care so much about about getting it dealt with. The Labour Me Too campaign, the Labour Too campaign, has done some brilliant work in telling women's stories and in making some recommendations for change in terms of how our policies and processes should work. And there is a big gap between people's experiences when they report and what we would like their experiences to be. And we should be be brave enough to say, actually, although, of course, we want to do our best to, to be good when it's uh, dealing with it when people report sexual harassment, actually, there are all sorts of stories of women who've tried to go through our processes and have found it horrendous, and we have to be able to do something about that. And to be fair... We're talking about something that is reflected in in the wider world. You know, this isn't just happening in the Labour Party, isn't just happening in politics. But the point about it being a challenge to the Labour Party is we are supposed to be better than this. We're supposed to be trying to promote equality and creating it. And and, when we were talking about Harriet's book earlier on, I was thinking, you know, what's the point in having had strong feminist women prepared to take, quite frankly, a load of not great treatment over the years if we aren't doing better than that now? We, We should be doing better than this now. What do you think might be the legislative proposals that you could put forward around this? Because we've talked a lot about how, the, you know, culture can be changed and basically talk about how people's behaviour. But is there a way that, especially in workplaces, we can do something? I don't know about workplaces, but the one that springs to my mind immediately is we passed recently the rules on coercive control. So now it's it's not just violent abuse that is a crime, but also you know, to control a person by verbal abuse and controlling behaviour. And I think that's really important. But the more that we find out, I think the more we'll see that the law needs to be developed in that area to encompass financial abuse and other aspects of abusive behaviour that are not necessarily have that traditionally haven't been codified because there was a sense in which, well, what happens between a married couple is their own business. And actually, we don't take that attitude anymore. And so I think the law probably could be developed in that area. I think I take a slightly different view in that I think the law isn't that bad. Our laws aren't bad. It's implementation that's often really weak. You know, I think it was a welcome step forward that we have coercive control now on the statute boot. And that was a, that was a gap because often when I was working with violent men, then stopping using physical violence was fairly straightforward. But then stopping using coercion and sexual coercion in particular was a lot more challenging. That was the more persistent long-term stuff. So I was really glad that got passed. But I do think we've got a problem with implementation. And some of that needs bigger culture change. So I want us to... The legislation that I want us to deal with is... The one we passed when the Children's Social Work Bill went through earlier this year, and, and it actually was supposed to make sex and relationships education compulsory. Now, the government's had months now to develop a plan for that, and it's not like it's hard. There are plenty of people who've been working on that for years, and again, I was involved in that sort of work. There's loads of really good people who develop good curricula, and there's some expert people, and when we were in government, we actually supported really good personal health and social education. Um, so... It's not like it's complicated to go out and find out how to do this well, and we really need to be doing that. What we hear a lot, I think, is that when these things start coming out, we're getting now names come out in terms of politicians who've been guilty of sexual harassment or abuse. And the way that it's reported is that there'd become a kind of culture of silence around it. And in a place like Westminster, where people spend so much time, and they do hear rumours if you go to a bar, but then nothing happens about it. And I was just interested to hear what you would think is the way to deal with if someone does tell you something like that in a bar, 
and it's not coming directly from a kind of first-hand source or anything, is there actually a good way? And, you know, what is the kind of correct way to react to something like well, that? Well, here's a difficulty. Who are we employed by and who are our staff employed by? So I, I, I've spoken about this this morning with one of my members of staff who said she doesn't feel that there's enough processes there for her. Her HR is essentially non... You know, that our staff, they work for us. We're essentially self-employed, like many self-employed businesses. If it was an MP that was harassing you and you were working for that MP or it was your a, a colleague of your the MP you're working for, who do you go to? And I don't think... I think there's a real... I don't know if it's a legislative gap, but certainly a human resources gap in Parliament. But, you know, it is wider than that. You know, you, you can hear rumours anywhere. I don't go to the bars in, in Westminster, but you may hear rumours in other places. And I don't think there is a clear policy that either our staff or Houses of Parliament staff, or we as MPs can feel confident in. And is it worth saying something about why sometimes there are rumours but that don't necessarily get reported or go anywhere? And I think there are a number of reasons for that. One is if it's just two people in a room, what is your evidence? You know, you're often more junior, he's more senior. You know, he'll say it didn't happen. What are you going to do? There's also obviously the broader kind of reputational stuff. Like, do you want to spend your entire life being well known as the person who made a complaint about X, Y, Z? I think it also comes back to, in a Labour Party sense, comes back to the failure of our processes. I used to be the National Women's Officer of the Labour Party as a as, as my job, and I would get phone calls from women who'd been in horrible situations. What I was supposed to do was refer them to their regional director, which which I did. That was the kind of what I also tried to do was to give them some informal advice I've had some really frank conversations with kind of people who were who were staff alongside me since who you know some regional directors who I was referring people to and they were just like what what are we supposed to do you know you have somebody who's in a position of power in the Labour Party whose reputation is important to Labour Party and somebody else who says they've done something wrong no one can prove anything you know there are there are plenty of party staff I think who tried very hard in in a very kind of amateur way to give personal support to to some of those women but actually we do not have of proper processes and and policies that that can mean those women get any sort of justice. And is this where actually what we need is a third party? So we need a, some sort of independent organisation that the Labour Party nominates as its the third party organisation that then a person in that situation could be referred to to report report it outside the Labour Party's structures. They can then offer support and any presumably could then report into the regional director to say you need to investigate this person blah 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 make recommendations yeah, yeah. so after the terrible lord Reynard scandal that the lib dems experienced they appointed someone called helena morrissey to to write a report so you know what how can we make sure this doesn't happen again and she recommended exactly that so the lib dems now have to fund an independent person who can commission what's needed so they can commission an independent investigation someone to to go and look into it or they can recommend that somebody's given advice and and support in whatever way and I think what's really important about that is that it takes it out of the kind of political argy-bargy. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter who's senior or, or who's, you know, what, what faction you're in or, or whatever else. It's a professional person who's, who's employed to find resolutions to difficult situations. If anyone's listening to this and thinking, gosh, this makes me not want to go into politics. I, I mean, I really want to, to sort of try and find a positive way that we, we can end some of this conversation this afternoon because... The difference of being in politics and experiencing some of these things is that you actually are possibly more likely to be able to fix them for other women. And something about that came up in Harriet's 
book, things we were talking about earlier about our favourite political memoirs, is a phrase that Yvette, I think it's Yvette, says to her when she becomes deputy leader and she says, Harriet, this is not about how you feel, it's about how other people feel and what you're going to do about it. And I think that's that's the great gift that we have as, as local or, or national politicians is that we may be experiencing really difficult stuff, but we're actually in a position to be able to do things about it. And that's really powerful. It is. And for all of the difficulties, you know, I've got many ludicrous stories of people doing silly, inappropriate and sometimes downright offensive things. But for all of that, I mean, I I would not have let it put me off. And I would agree with you absolutely, Thangam, that that if there's anybody listening to this feeling that this is in some way a reason to be negative about politics, it isn't. It's a reason to be negative about the way that women get treated in society and a reason to get involved in politics. Women women of all walks of life experience this. It's just that we're in a position to do something about it. Exactly. I think that is a brilliant place to close this conversation but thang and rachel thank you so much for coming in and if you are interested in this issue please do visit labour2.org.uk So something I just wanted to make sure we got in into this conversation is if you are listening to this and you're thinking some of these things are happening to me, if somebody's making you feel uncomfortable, intimidated, is coercing you into doing something that you don't want to do in a relationship, whether it be sexual or physical or emotional, there are people out there who can help. So if it's in a partnership, it's in a relationship, it could be the National Domestic Violence Helpline. If it's it may be the rape crisis helplines, there's very many local rape crisis groups around the country. But also if what's happening to you might be a crime and an awful lot of stuff is a crime that you may not realise it is important to get in touch with the police because the police can and usually will try to help you if they can and certainly my understanding of most local police forces is that they want to do better on um, improving how they respond to people experiencing sexual harassment sexual abuse and sexual coercion so please don't suffer in silence please try and seek help if you are listening to this there are people who are out there to help you every tuesday Connor asks a political pub quiz question, which is then answered on Friday's follow-up extra show. Now, last week's question, absolutely no one got right. No one even attempted to answer it. It was clearly too difficult. Good Lord. And so we'll be sending the mug to the uh, person who set the question, Joe Oliver, instead. Joe has also set this question, but I'm hoping that our listeners are slightly more kind of tuned in this week and ready is, to... Is Joe, is Joe actually just wanting to acquire a set of progress <laughs> political mugs? We have enough, you know. I'm, I'm <laughs> so, so setting incredibly hard questions no one can answer. I, I put this one to the Progress Office earlier and no one in the office got it either. Oh, th- so this bodes well. This bodes well. Th- this week's question is, what do Anthony Crossland, Shirley Williams, John Silken, Gwyneth Dunwoody and Hazel Blears have in common? Do you know what it is? Don't, don't say I've, it if you have not got a clue. But if you uh, send your answers to at Progress Online or at Connor Pope on Twitter, or email us at office at progressonline.org.uk and you could win a Progress mug. We have to wrap up now, but we've been delighted to have Thangam Debonair and Rachel Saunders joining us today. Richard and Connor will be back on Friday to respond to your comments and dish out some fabulous prizes. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast with me, Alison McGovern, with Richard Angel and Connor Pope. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton who produced this podcast.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.